It's going to be a beautiful time, isn't it? Think about that we're going to be able to gather together and worship for not a thousand years, not 5,000 years, but a hundred thousand years. I mean, you never, ever will cease to exist. And it will be totally different. You won't be tired and wore out. And you won't be sick. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin, no more struggles, no more trials, no more tribulation. Nothing but just in the presence of God and the joy of God in the presence of Christ forever and ever. And who knows what God has planned past the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's just an amazing thing to consider. Well, I'd like us now to turn our attention to Romans. Romans chapter 10 tonight. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 21, specifically zeroing in on verse 16 through 21 tonight. We're going to be discussing Israel's responsibility for her unbelief. Israel's responsibility for her unbelief. Romans chapter 10, verse 12 through 21. The word of God says, For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by a word of Christ. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone forth out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. And Isaiah was very bold when he said, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask me. But to Israel, he says... All day long I have stretched out my hands to this disobedient and contrary people. Israel was and is a nation that has great privilege. Of all the families of the earth, they were chosen, they were adopted, they were made the people of God. They were uniquely given the revelation of God and powerful displays of God in their deliverance from Egypt through the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, through the times of God feeding and providing for them in the wilderness, and even the times when God, through his power, conquered the nations and conquered the cities where they would go in and take the promised land. And his unique presence was even given to them in the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple. He gave them the Old Testament scriptures, and they were made a holy nation unto the Lord. They were set apart from all the other nations, having been given revelation that no other nation had. They had the one true God and worshipped the one true God. They were monotheistic as opposed to the polytheism of the pagan nations around them. But beyond all of this, they were the means that God had chosen to bring the Messiah into the world. They were the means through the lineage of Israel that Jesus Christ would come. Profound and powerful displays of God's power were put on display whenever Jesus came here and ministered for over three years. Irrefutable evidence was given to them that Jesus was the Messiah and that he indeed was the Son of God, the one who, who had been prophesied thousands of years before. Acts 2.22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, you yourselves know. You know him. John 3, 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus, you remember, and said that no man could do the things that you do unless God is with him. Also in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2 and following, it says that when John, that is John the Baptist, had heard in prison about the works of Christ, 
He sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you coming? Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and you see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In John 21, 25, John the Apostle even recorded that there were many, many other things that Jesus did. He went on to say he supposed that the world could not contain all the things that Jesus both did and said. It's an amazing thing to consider that the amount of revelation that Israel had received early on in the Old Testament times, and then when Jesus comes, he gives them that much more revelation The tragedy is, is that in spite of all the evidence, in spite of all the miracles, in spite of all the information, in spite of all the prophets, they rejected their Messiah. They were unwilling to believe. Unwilling to believe. In face of the most brilliant light that had been given to any people on this planet, their eyes remained in unbelief. The gospel of their salvation was rejected in the culmination and climax of their rejection of Jesus Christ and crucifying him on the cross. Israel literally refused their only hope, their only hope. It is an unimaginable and unbelievable situation to think that such a people, such a great nation, having been given such privilege by God, would have rejected the very Messiah that had been sent to them. So how are we to explain this? How are we to understand this, biblically speaking? The only means of salvation that the Jews had came through Jesus Christ. The ones that you would have believed they would have been eager to receive. In fact, you got a little glimpse of it the day that he came into Jerusalem and they cried out, Hosanna. It seems like they began to understand, but they missed it. They missed it. The culmination of Jesus' public ministry and how they responded to it is found in John chapter 12, verse 35 through 40, where it says this, Jesus says, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtakes you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. These things, John says, Jesus spoke, and as I remember telling you, one of the most amazing things in all of the Bible is it says that Jesus hid himself from them. But it says this in verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. The reason why they did not believe is because they were contrary They were obstinate. They were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. They were unwilling to submit to what the Word of God said about this Christ. But also, they fulfilled Scripture. They fulfilled what the prophets actually had foretold, like Isaiah said in the text in verse 38 of that same chapter. It says that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which was spoken, which says, Lord, who has believed our report? Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? We just read it in Romans chapter 10. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah also said, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Paul in Romans chapter 9 through 11 explains this amazing and very complex plan of God that he has for the nation Israel. In chapter 9, he talks about God's sovereign choice of Israel, that they were specifically chosen among the nations, not because they were a large people, not because they were a great people, because, in fact, they were nothing. They were a small people, but God sovereignly chose them, and they exist because God sovereignly chose them. But in chapter 10, he tells us that part of the plan that God had for Israel was their unbelief. 
that in fact it was not something that caught God by surprise, but was in fact the plan all along. That Israel would reject their Messiah, they would not believe in Christ, and that for the most part, Israel would go off in unbelief. One of the reasons that is given in this text that God has established Israel as divine sovereignty, but the reason why that Israel has been designated as an unbelieving nation is because of their own personal responsibility. God did not, listen to this carefully, you need to understand this, God did not make them unbelieve. God did not make them reject. God did not make them refuse. They did that on their own. They needed no help. The Bible talks much about divine sovereignty. And it also talks much about human responsibility. Both are taught in Scripture, and listen to this carefully, both are causal. In other words, both have an effect. No Jew, no Israelite can ever be saved apart from God choosing to save them. No Israelite will ever be saved apart from God's divine, sovereign election. But also, no Jew can be saved unless he believes and repents. And listen to this. For which he is fully responsible for, even if God does not choose him. I know when you hear that, you think, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But let me see if I can help you just for a moment with that. You may ask, how can that be possible? How can someone not be chosen, not be elect, and yet still be held responsible for their unbelief. Some might argue, how can they be held accountable? Because after all, I mean, the only ones that ever would believe are the elect, and how is it that the non-elect Jew could ever be held responsible for his rejection of the Messiah? And there are a number of ways to look at this, but let me see if I can help you with it. First of all, if you can just understand a few things about this, It will help explain how this is possible. There's a phrase you need to remember, if you can, and uh, it will help you. And it is this. You can, but you won't. And you won't because you can't. Can you remember that? You can, but you won't. You won't because you can't. Another way to say that is you are free to choose, but your choice is not free. This is an attempt, at least, to try to help us in our finite, limited minds to understand human responsibility and divine sovereignty. But one of the ways you can understand that, at least one of the ways I believe helps you to understand that, is not to eliminate one of the most critical and crucial doctrines in all of the Bible, and that is the depravity and the sinfulness of man. And what I mean by the phrase, you can but you won't, and you won't because you can't, is this. You can come, listen to me carefully now, so that you don't write me off before I'm done. You can come, that is you can respond to the gospel, you can believe, you can repent, You have a mind, you have a will, you have volition, you have understanding, you have intellect. But even though you have all of those things, the ability to make a choice, you won't. You say, why won't I? You won't because you can't. You say, why can't I? You can't because you love your sin too much. That's what binds you. That's what keeps you. That's what makes you dead in your sin. In other words, if you did not have the love for sin that you have, if you did not have the love for evil that you have, you would be willing to come to the light. But because you have such a love for your own sin and a love for evil, you are unwilling so much so that you can't come. That's what binds you there. That's exactly what Jesus was teaching in John 3. Listen to this. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil 
hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed. Men are fully responsible for their rejection of the Messiah. They are fully responsible for their unbelief and their lack of repentance because they love their sins so much they can't come to Christ. It binds them there. Hebrews 3.12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. Today, he says, lest any of you be hardened, listen to this, through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is what binds the human heart in rebellion against God. And to add a little bit better flavor to that so that we understand more what Scripture teaches, our love of the pleasure of sin binds us where we are. We will not leave it even to save our lives. We will not leave it to embrace Messiah. We will not leave it because we love it so very much. There's a passage over in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12 that talks about the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, who will come with the workings of Satan, it says, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. And it says they are perishing, listen to this, because they did not receive the love of the truth. And that's key there. They don't love the truth. They perish because they're unwilling to receive the truth. They don't love the truth. Why is it? Verse 11 says, for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but rather had pleasure in unrighteousness. In other words, what binds the human heart in rebellion against God and in unbelief is the pleasure of unrighteousness. The heart is deceitful in the lost person and desperately wicked and seeks out its pleasure in sin and is unwilling to believe, unwilling to repent because of its love of its own sin. There's also another reason why Romans 9 through 11 is given to us here, as we've already looked at in the past, and that is this. It explains in the context of how the unbelief of Israel fits into the plan of God. This is critical. In fact, as Paul moves through this, as we work our way through chapter 10 and also chapter 11, specifically more chapter 11, he will conclude with this great crescendo of praise that is unlike any other portion in the rest of the Bible where Paul talks about how unsearchable the wisdom of God is. And what he's reflecting on is how God can actually take a people that he chose that he designated to be the people that would bring Messiah, yet would actually work through their unbelief and rebellion against God and graft in the Gentile nations, and then later on graft in Israel again. It's an amazing thing. Fully against what most of us would ever come up with, but God, in his wisdom, comes up with this amazing plan of his grace his unmerited favor to a rebellious, obstinate, contrary, disobedient people named Israel. In Romans 9, he talks about Israel's past and its origins from the sovereign divine perspective. In Romans 10, he talks about Israel's current state of rebellion and unbelief. In Romans 11, he talks about Israel's future being grafted back in in salvation. And we are currently looking at the reason why Israel rejected the gospel. I told you in the light of the truth of Scripture, as we've learned already, the amount of evidence that was given to Israel is astonishing. It's one thing for us just to read through the gospels and to read and what Jesus did and what he said, and even to go back to the Old Testament and to see what God did through Israel and how miraculously he sustained the people of God through all of those years. And yet still reject the Son of God. How is it that they could stumble in such a dramatic way? How is it that they could fail in such an amazing way? Well, we remember in chapter 10, as we looked our way through it, the first problem they had was they did not understand the true God of salvation. 
which is sobering enough that they did not understand God's righteousness, so they missed the true righteousness that they needed to be saved. They thought that they had the right kind of righteousness by what they could do. In fact, they toned down the true righteousness of the holy God of Israel and um, increased in favor to themselves their own personal righteousness. The second reason why they remained in unbelief is because they were ignorant of the very Christ of salvation. They didn't understand what Messiah came to do. They thought that he was coming to deliver them from the oppression of Rome and the other pagan nations and to set up the kingdom. And that was going to be the Messiah. But the Messiah came to end the law. That is to fulfill all the law in his perfect life so that they could be made righteous in the sight of God. That's what he says in Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law. He's the completion of the law. He's the fulfillment of all the law for righteousness. He is our righteousness. They didn't understand that because they were self-righteous. And third, Israel was ignorant of the faith of salvation. This was a major stumbling block to them because their salvation was based on works, what they could do or what they didn't do. Not only the very laws of God, but the hundreds of other laws that the scribes and the elders of Israel had placed around God's law to, quote, help them keep the law. But it became a burden to the people of Israel. They felt oppressed by the law. That's the context, by the way, of the words of our Lord where he says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He's not talking about the work week. I had a, you know, a tough week at work. He's talking about the oppression of the laws of Israel on the people of God. The Sabbath was no longer a joy. It was a burden to the people of Israel. And so they were based, they based their entire understanding of salvation on works, not faith. And yet Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus in verse 9 and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This was truly a stumbling block for them. In chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Israel pursued the law of righteousness, did not attain it. Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but by works of the law. That's verse 31 and 32 of Romans 9. But also the other one that gave them a lot of trouble was the extent of salvation. They remained in unbelief, and they still even are today because they have great trouble with the extent of salvation, that it would be even given to the Gentiles, the pagans. That's Romans 10, 11 and following. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, and the whoever is key there. Everyone who believes, whether they're Jew or they're Greek, that's what he says in verse 12, there is no distinction this is Romans 10, 12. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. You and I love that verse. We are thankful for that verse, but the Jews of Paul's day were not. That was a great problem for them, a great problem for them, a huge issue. So Paul's point tonight, as we look at our text and move a little further on now, is this, is that Although they were ignorant of God's righteousness, right? They were ignorant of Christ's substitution. They were ignorant of faith's appropriation. And they were ignorant of the gospel's extension. They are still fully responsible for their unbelief and their rebellion, even though they were given great information, even though they were given the truth. Even though Messiah shows up, they are fully responsible for it. Fully responsible for their lack of belief. Fully responsible, even though we've already learned that God sovereignly chooses those that make up true Israel, yes. But the ones who rebel, the ones who do not obey, the ones who do not follow Christ are fully responsible for their rebellion because it comes out of their own evil heart and love for sin. Now, the four points that we have tonight, and this is a very simple text. It's uh, very, very simple, so it won't take us long. That's not a promise. The first one is this. They did not obey. That's why they're held responsible. Secondly, they did not listen. Third, they did not understand. 
And fourth, they did not submit. That's the four reasons why they are held accountable and responsible for their rejection of Messiah. The first is they did not obey. Look at verse 16. Now, we skipped this one last week, and I told you why, because we were going to add it on to the text we have today. And the reason why, as you'll see in just a moment, it fits well with the rest of the text. Although we understand Paul's thought and his line of thinking here. In Romans 10, 16, it tells us this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. The all referring to all Israel, primarily. That's his theme here in this text. Some believe that all would refer to the Greeks and the Jews, but primarily his point here is, because he quotes Isaiah and in uh, this passage in verse 16, Lord who has believed our report, that the all he's talking about here is that the all of Israel And that doesn't mean every single person, because we know the Apostle Paul was a believer. The 12 apostles were the believers, except Judas, obviously. We also understand there were others that followed the Lord. There were 120 in the upper room in Acts chapter 1, and the church grew rapidly by Acts chapter 2. 3,000 souls were added to the church, and more later on in chapter 4, 5,000. So we know that there were many Jews who came to to know and believe in Christ. But as a general rule, they did not obey as a nation. It says in verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel, the good news of Christ about Messiah. I think you need to understand something here and note this. You want to underline or score this word here in verse 16, the word obeyed, obeyed. Notice what it says. It does not say they have not all believed the gospel, does it? Now, the very next part of the phrase, quoting Isaiah, says, Lord, who has believed our report. In Paul's mind, there's that synonymous use of obey and believe. The word translated here, obey, in verse 16 is the word hupakuo. It basically means to submit and to yield under superior authority or to obey a command. It's used in the Bible a number of ways, like yielding to a superior officer or a person. It's used of the obedience of the wind and the sea at the command of Christ. It's used as the, uh, in reference to the unclean spirits obeying Christ's commands. It's used in the context of children obeying parents. It's used in the context of slaves obeying their masters. It's used in the context of obedience to the apostles, the obedience of Abraham, the obedience of Sarah to Abraham, and the list goes on and on. The point is, is that this word obey simply means to submit to and to be obedient to the higher authority. And what he's telling us is that obedience is really one of the crucial ingredients of salvation, but not obedience in the sense of law-keeping, but obedience in the sense to the gospel. What does the gospel command? Well, what does the gospel command? It commands to believe. That's one command. It commands to repent. That's another command. It commands to confess. Those are all commandments. And when someone believes the gospel, they are obeying a commandment. So that's why Paul can say this in verse 16, but they have not all all obeyed the gospel. When you hear the word gospel, don't just think like 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus came and died according to the scriptures and was buried according to the scriptures and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that is the gospel. That is true. It is the gospel, but that's not all the message. That's not every detail of it, right? And we all understand that. It's important to note because so many today have this understanding of belief as just an intellectual exercise when, in fact, it actually affects the will. If you truly believe unto salvation, then you obey unto salvation. If you truly are a Christian, then you have obeyed the gospel. That is, you have obeyed the belief commandment, the repent commandment, the confess commandment. That's why Romans chapter 1 verse 5 says that through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. This is used also in Romans chapter 2, verse 8 and following that talks about how God will in the future judge without partiality. And he says, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will, would receive indignation and wrath. And we find it in Romans six seventeen. but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Romans 16, 25 says, Now to him 
who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret from, from the world beginning, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. You find this also used in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, that Jesus would, re- would return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Do not obey the gospel. Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. The very beginning of the salvation of Abraham was an act of obedience. God said, go. You know what he said? Yes, sir. He's going. But why did he go? It says in this text that he actually obeyed because of faith. He believed God, therefore he acted. He obeyed, and then he moved forward. He obeyed because he believed, and he believed because he obeyed. It's all together. But the unbelief of Israel should not surprise any of us. Why? Verse 16, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Where does that come from? Well, actually, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 53. If you know anything about Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 is the Old Testament gospel. It's really uh, a representation of all that Jesus did in his substitutionary atonement. Very, very graphic and very, very specific, in fact. And so what he is telling us is that these who are in Israel did not obey the very command, which is in essence the gospel itself about the substitutionary death of Jesus. They were unwilling to submit to Christ unwilling to submit to his death, burial, and resurrection for their salvation. John 12, 37 records the same thing as I read earlier, but although they had done, he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Even as far back as Isaiah, he was prophesying of the rejection of Israel. And not just the rejection of Israel of any general thing, but the rejection of the very passage of Isaiah 53, which is in reference to the Messiah coming to die in their place as a substitute for their sins. So the first reason why they are held accountable for their sin of unbelief is they did not obey. They did not obey. Secondly, they did not listen. Look at verse 17 now. They did not listen. We looked at this verse a little last time in chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, a better translation of the text, because most of the manuscripts are in favor of that word Christ. And the word word here is the word rhema, which refers to a specific statement about Christ. In other words, faith comes by hearing and hearing what? Not just anything, but hearing the words about Jesus. The words about Jesus Christ. And that has been preached. That's the point that Paul's driving home. That has been preached not just at the time of Jesus, but long before Jesus showed up, it was preached through the prophets. As I just referenced Isaiah 53. That's why he says in verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? What's his answer? Absolutely they have. They've heard the truth. They've heard the message, they've heard the words of Christ, they've heard the gospel, but the point was they didn't listen. They didn't listen. Someone might suggest that they were not given enough information. Uh, I've heard that before. Well, you know, the Old Testament saints, they didn't get all the gospel. They had to believe just a little bit of it. Well, according to the New Testament, it says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And the gospel was in infancy all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? When it says that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman, which was a reference to Messiah. And that was not the only time it was referenced, not only through the symbols and the, the sacrifices and the tabernacle. All of that pictured the coming Messiah and the coming Christ. 
They should have known, as Paul did, as he teaches in the book of Hebrews, that there would never be full forgiveness for your sins by the blood of goats and bulls. I mean, an animal die for you? Substitute for you? Some would say, though, well, they didn't have enough information. So God doesn't hold them accountable because they didn't have enough information. That's not what Paul says. Paul actually quotes an interesting verse in verse 18. He says, I say to you, have they not heard? Oh, yes, they have. Then he quotes this. Their sound has gone out in all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Where is that from? Well, he's quoting Psalm 19, verse 4. And in that text, if you remember that text, what that is referring to is how God has declared himself through the general revelation of creation. The heavens declare the power of God in that text. The firmament show his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. There's no place where it's not heard. In other words, God puts on display his very character through creation. Wasn't that Romans 1? Remember that? What did Paul say at the very beginning of Romans? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them because God has shown it to them, not only the Greeks, but also the Jews. For since the creation of the world, his invisible characteristics are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse. God has already given you enough information about himself just through general revelation. That's what John, uh, Paul's point is. People say, well, the Jews didn't have enough information. Oh, yes, they did. They had the very beginning that all of us have that is enough to condemn every single soul to hell, and that is creation itself. It's enough to declare God. Whenever you say that's not enough proof, you're basically saying what God has put out there is a lie and doesn't prove him to be who he is. But also, if you remember, I think it's important to note that Psalm 19 not only talks about general revelation of God through creation, but just a little later in the same text, he goes through that great and amazing portion where he talks about special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Remember those words? That's that same chapter. So the psalmist is telling us, listen, God reveals himself in creation and general revelation, but he also reveals himself in specific revelation, which is the word of God or the Old Testament text, right? And by the way, most go to that text in Psalm 119 that talks about the word of God, the precepts of God, the statutes of the Lord, all of those that refer to the word of God as a reference to the sufficiency of the Bible. It's absolutely sufficient all-encompassing. It's all you need is the Word of God. And so even in the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament is declaring for itself absolute total sufficiency to lead someone to the right knowledge of God and the right knowledge of Christ. But you see, they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen to their own prophets. They didn't listen to the minor prophets. They didn't listen to the major prophets. They didn't listen to John the Baptist when he showed up. They weren't willing to listen. And the reason why they weren't willing to listen is because they loved their sin. They loved their self-righteousness. That's the reason why they hated Jesus so much. Because when he came on the scene, he took the law of God and he brought it to the point that the Old Testament accurately taught it. And it exposed their heresies. It exposed their unrighteousness. It exposed their self-righteousness. And they had nowhere to go, no place to hide. They were unwilling to see, and they were unwilling to listen to the gospel. When Galileo was summoned before the Roman Catholic Inquisition for teaching that the earth revolved around the sun rather than the sun around the earth, he was charged with heresy. And when he offered to demonstrate the truth by allowing them to look through his telescope, they refused. They weren't going to listen. They weren't going to listen in spite of the evidence. Just look. Just look. Nope. They weren't going to listen. They were refusing to listen. Just like Israel. They had all the evidence, all the truth, all the uh, information. And instead of believing, they would not listen. And that's the second reason why they are accountable and responsible for their unbelief. And the third is this. They did not understand 
They did not understand. You say, well, that should be a little bit less harsh. I mean, after all, if you don't understand something, that's not your fault. Wrong on this occasion. They should have understood. They should have understood. Something, obviously, they were unwilling to accept is something that the Old Testament prophets had told them time and time again, that the nation Israel was to be a blessing to, listen to this, all the nations, not just themselves. They were to be a blessing to all the nations. And in fact, there was the prophetic announcements over and over again that Israel would end up in unbelief and that God would turn to the nations and that these people who never knew of the God of Israel would end up finding salvation in the God of Israel. But they would claim they didn't get it. But they are still responsible because the Bible is very clear. Very clear. Verse 19, look at it with me. But I say, did Israel not know? And the word know here is a aorist form of the word ginosko, which has the idea of understanding, not just having knowledge. I mean, they had the knowledge. They had the Old Testament scriptures. Many of them had memorized these portions of the Bible. But they didn't understand. So Paul asked the question, did Israel not understand? And here's his reason why he believes they really should have understood. First, Moses. He quotes the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, referring to Moses. And what he quotes is a passage found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. What he says in our text is, I will provoke you, that is Israel, to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Referring to the pagan nations around them, the pagan people. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. And like I told you, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Let me read just a section of it so you get the flavor of where this comes from. Talking about Israel here in this text, it says they, that they refers to Israel, they provoked God to jealousy with foreign gods. You know the history of Israel, right? I mean, how often that they went after other gods and false gods and did not remain faithful to the one true God. So it says, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, to new arrivals that our fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face for them. This is God saying it to Israel. I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they, will, they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. God says, you reject me. I'll go after another nation, they'll become my people, and then you're going to be jealous over that. Then he quotes Isaiah, not only the law, but now the prophets, right? He quotes Isaiah in chapter 10, verse 20. But Isaiah has been very bold when he says this. Some believe that the idea of the, high, the word bold means very clear. The, actually, the actual word does mean courageous. And it could be that, and simply that, that Isaiah was courageous when he said this. What did he say? Quoting him, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Again, quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he's basically telling them that it is no surprise to God whatsoever that these Gentiles have believed and that you have rejected that's no surprise to God whatsoever. God had already planned it long ago. You should have understood this. You should have understood. This is not the only time this is referred to in the Old Testament. A number of times the prophets refer to God's spurning of Israel and turning to the Gentiles. And then the Gentiles actually creating jealousy in the heart of Israel. But the point is they claim they did not know and did not understand. But Paul says, oh, no, that's not an excuse. Kind of like us today, right? Some people say, well, I'm going to stand before the Lord, and I'm just going to say, I didn't know. I didn't understand. Not possible. Not possible. 
How are you going to be able to say, I never had access to a Bible or never had access to a church or a sermon or a teaching in the Word of God? You're going to be able to stand before God and say that? That's not even possible at all. And even beyond that, you have creation enough, right? So they did not obey, therefore they're responsible. They did not listen, therefore they're responsible. They did not understand. A lot of it has to do with their own apathy and laziness and unwillingness to submit to what the Bible says. Therefore, they are responsible. And then one last one, they did not submit. Look at verse 21. But to Israel, he says, Isaiah that is, all day long, God says, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You're never going to be able to say God did not pursue us, that God never cared. God cared for his people Israel. God provided for his people Israel. God sustained his people Israel. God disciplined his people Israel in captivity, then brought them back and restored them to the land. And yet they still remain a disobedient and contrary people. This, by the way, comes from Isaiah 65 too which says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to this rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. And that's exactly what they were. The word disobedience is a word that has the idea not just like you and I would think of disobedience, but more this, not to allow yourself to be persuaded. That's the idea. Not so much just rebelling against a command, disobedient, But the unwillingness to allow yourself to be persuaded. It's like what Hebrews argues over and over again. How evidence after evidence was given about Messiah. But you were not willing to believe it. You refused it. You hardened your heart to the truth. You were not willing to be persuaded by the evidence. That's the idea behind the word disobedient. Then the other one is contrary, antilego. Uh, it's a word that means to contradict or to oppose. You oppose, you contradict. One original word it came from, antilagia, which has the idea of a contradiction. They were literally contradicting, opposing, reviling the very commandments and statements of Christ. And they still are in many ways that way. They are unwilling to be persuaded by the words of God and the claims of Messiah and even the New Testament record. And they are even to this day those that would oppose and contradict and be unwilling to accept the New Testament record of the apostles. So Israel is responsible for their unbelief, not just because God didn't select them or save them or elect them but they are responsible for their unbelief because they were unwilling to obey unwilling to listen unwilling to understand and unwilling to submit to the claims of christ and the claims of the gospel one last text i will share with you tonight that goes along with this very flavor of this text is luke chapter 16 excuse me luke chapter 14 turn to that with me just for a moment we'll close with this luke chapter 14 In Luke 14, 16, Jesus tells us this story. He says, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go to see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to test them. I ask you to excuse me. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets to the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded. And still there's room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. 
For I say to you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my supper. You know what that's talking about, right? That's the initial invitation God gave to Israel to respond to Messiah. They rejected, gave all kinds of excuses, and now God said, I'm turning away, and I'm turning to the Gentiles. I'm bringing all those people in. These others are not invited. Folks, I'll tell you the truth. You know, the more I study this text, and I've been in it for a little while now, going into Romans chapter 11, I'm absolutely astounded at the profound wisdom of God and the plan of God. But I'm also amazed of the grace of God. A little later on in Romans eleven six, it will talk about the grace of God is not works, and works is not grace. And the point of all of that is this. All of us, every one of us, Jew or Gentile, are all condemned without God's grace. And we are thankful that God has saved us by his amazing grace. And we're going to find out later on that just because we are now part of that, that tree, as illustrated in the chapter 11, that we don't boast against the branches. We don't boast against Israel. We're here because God chose to bring us in. That's why we're here. That's why we're saved. Amen? What a blessing. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. And, Lord, we are so thankful that you decided long ago, before the world ever began, to graft us in. We were a rebellious people, alienated, separated from you, having no desire from you, pursuing our own passions, following after the devil, consumed by the world and the things of it. And you had decided long ago, Lord God, that even through the unbelief and the tragic rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, that you would bring us in. Lord, we pray for Israel. We pray as even Paul the Apostle said in the beginning of chapter 10, his heart's desire for Israel is that they may be saved. They have so much information, so much truth. I pray for you to save them, Lord God. I pray for you to save so many other nations. So many are walking in darkness, rebellion, following after other gods and other religions that are going to condemn them to eternal hell. And Lord, I pray your grace to enter in, shed light where there's darkness, bring truth where there is none, and save so many for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.